Blog Talk Radio. You're aware that I can, every time I hear that little ditty, I can only hear Mark Hamill singing Guys and Dolls, right? <laughs> I'm just saying, I think you should let it go until, you know, uh, any stock boy or it could be a main attraction with just a good-looking pair, and then cut it. All right, we'll try that next time. Or we can reset. <laughs> Hang on, I have the play button right now. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Uh, hi everybody. This, I'm not doing it again. This <laughs> is the Rattlech and Broadcasting Network Movie Review Club. I'm Robert Winfrey. That's Mark Rattlech, and uh, you just kind of stumbled into I guess an impromptu production meeting about when I cut off the intro music. <laughs> it's not a Rattlech. It's not a Rattlech and Broadcasting podcast without a production meeting played for you live for your enjoyment. That's true. Normally we wait till the end of the show, but this time we're getting it out of the way early. <laughs> I'm sure we'll do it again, trust me. Oh, yeah. All right. On the menu tonight. Um, guys, I'm going to warn you beforehand. Mark and I are going to disagree a little bit on this one. And those usually make for our more entertaining episodes because when we just agree, it's just like, well, what are we complaining about you know there's no dynamism to the interaction it's just yes you're right here's how i think you're right yes i think you're right about that ah jolly good shake hands off we go uh <laughs> when we disagree we you know, can kind of get into points from time to time and we're gonna have a few of those tonight not a whole lot uh a few though uh next week if you're <laughs> uh, i'll give you all a preview right now i haven't seen deadpool yet but I am more than prepared to be the only guy saying that movie is terrible. Uh, I'm also equally prepared to be wrong about it. But uh, from what I've seen, I'm, uh, I'm not hopeful. But tonight, instead of you know, leaving aside Ryan Reynolds and what I'm sure is a very, very computer-enhanced full frontal nudity shot of him from that movie, it's there, folks. Believe and I've seen other people who've reviewed it have mentioned it. Trust me, it's there. Uh, 
Tonight we are reviewing Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Mm. I'll tell you right now, even even the zombie apocalypse struggles to make Jane Austen palatable. Uh, I read that was one of when I was in high school. Uh, took all the advanced English classes. I love reading, writing, art, you know, discussion, things of that nature. So I that was some of the advanced classes I took. Uh, I had to read Pride and Prejudice. Man, uh, there's a scene in the movie You've Got Mail, Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan, uh, where they're corresponding anonymously over the internet. She encourages him to read Pride and Prejudice because it's one of her favorites. She rereads it every year. And there's just this shot of her voiceover saying that she thinks he's going to love it. A slow pan down to him sitting at the kitchen table with this confused, befuddled expression on his face. He turns a page in the book, reaches for a mini bottle of vodka, takes a hit, and resumes reading. And I can completely and utterly sympathize. It is, uh, and I know people who enjoy it, and I understand that it's well-written. And I, I mean, intellectually, I, I get it. Personally, it's just, oh, I just, yeah, no. But there's a, you know, trend lately to mash zombies together with anything and see what comes out. <sighs> And there's a fundamental miscue here that I need to talk about as far as, you know, the zombie revival. That's the, yeah, enjoy the play on words there. That I'll get to in a minute or two. Uh, Mark, I'm curious. You're the one who kind of sets the schedule around here. You and I can, you know, we each get a couple of tap outs each year where we're just like, nope, sorry, I can't do it or I won't do it. Find somebody else. And we have guests that are more than happy to rotate in and talk with us about things if one of us needs time off or just, in my case, would rather smash my head into the wall than watch the second Turtles movie. But what inspired you to put Pride and Prejudice and Zombies on the list? Um, well, it was slated by the studio to be one of the big releases of the year. As a matter of fact, and we'll talk about this towards the end of the show, it was set to earn 10 to 12 million this weekend. It didn't. But um, the other thing Not about it was, was in, in coming up with the schedule, I obviously wanted to expand uh, into not just expand past just comic book movies, because if we were only doing comic book movies, we wouldn't be doing that many a year. I mean, there's, there's certainly a few, obviously, that come out, but. Um, in terms of you know what big, you know what big hits are coming out, we also have novelizations of movies. And Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies was a bestseller. The the actual book did well. So I yeah. thought, well, you know, um, at the time I wasn't even a, when I put the schedule together, I I didn't I wasn't aware Hail Caesar was a Coen Brothers movie. I just wasn't paying that close enough attention to it. And then as people who follow us might remember. Uh, we there was the possibility of us doing the Coen Brothers movie instead, since that seemed to be the bigger release this weekend, and my wife and I couldn't get a babysitter. <laughs> so, back to Pride and Prejudice and Zombies we went. But, that's the, but the short answer is, novelization of a bestseller, 
and the studio this the, the studio slated this to be one of its bigger releases of the year uh it won't be <laughs> it's, it's bombing but you know best intentions and all of that all right fair enough okay um i almost it's weird whenever i have to do a plot synopsis of an adapted story that is a well-known property i mean like I imagine if we had had to do this when the first X-Men movie came out, I'd feel really awkward. Like, okay, so here's this very well-known, internationally successful comic book property from the last, you know, 20, 30 years. And now I have to sum it up. It's just, it, it almost feels redundant to therefore you know do the synopsis for something like Pride and Prejudice. But Pride and Prejudice is also one of those books that I think people lie about having read. Much like, uh, you know, War and Peace, uh, Moby Dick, you know, things like that. that. Yeah. Wait, did you say The Art of War? I did. I have read The Art of War. Yes, but other people say they have and then they didn't. That's true. Uh, what was the other one? There's one other really kind of big one that people lie about having read. Eh, it escapes me at the moment. Oh, gosh. Treasure Island, Black Beauty, Alice in Wonderland. Name Alice in Wonderland is the one people really lie about. I've actually read both Treasure Island and Black Beauty. Have you really? Uh, long time ago, uh, when I was a kid. I owned those books when I was a kid. Does that count? I still own them. Uh See? Yeah, Black Beauty is not... Uh, there was actually a pretty decent adaptation of it in the mid-90s, early to mid-90s, that actually was relatively faithful to the source material. But uh, no, yeah, but yeah, I've read that one. Uh, Treasure Island, that's why I get so mad at every kid's adaptation of that story. They throw away character development and some of the stakes that Robert Louis Stevenson puts into it in favor of, hey, let's appeal to three-year-olds and their parents. And it bugs me. But that aside. Uh, real briefly, the plot for this goes as follows. No one's quite sure where or what started the zombie apocalypse, the zombie plague. There's an opening narration that mentions specifically it coming back from the colonies, that would in this case most likely be America and the Caribbean. Okay. Can I can I make a suggestion here? Sure. Give us a synopsis of Pride and Prejudice and then at the end say, and this movie adds zombies to that to to that. All right. Well, Pride and Prejudice <laughs> predominantly it deals with the character of Elizabeth Bennett. And her quest to find a husband. She has a bunch of sisters. It's very detailed about the goings-on of people and their silliness. It's a really odd story. She meets uh, Mr. Darcy very early, and the two of them constantly wind up butting heads because, and, and this is how we get the title of the book, folks, Darcy is supremely arrogant and... Elizabeth, consequently, can't take anything he says seriously or at face value or misinterprets. A series of near misses. She nearly marries this guy, Wickham. Uh, a couple of her sisters get married. She eventually, and she and Darcy eventually get together at the end of the story. Now, in this instance, 
they add zombies, so there's a few zombie issues. They have changed flintlock muzzle-loading rifles into something that is capable of actually exploding the human head, which was not technology <laughs> they had at the time. Uh, England is besieged by zombies. Wickham is actually a zombie trying to lead all other zombies. Hence, it's implied that he's trying to be the Antichrist. And uh, that's about it. Uh, again, the stakes for the Darcy and Wickham vying for Bennett's hand is altered from two guys who are kind of douchebags and a woman who is as concerned with finances as she is with love to one guy who's a douchebag and another guy who's a douchebag and wants to wipe out humanity. Yep, that's about right. It's a period piece that takes its period very seriously concerning the welfare of women and how that reconciles with true love and the threat of a zombie apocalypse. And, and, I, and I say that without the least bit of irony. That's the movie, folks. You have ostensibly a group of young gals who are very much concerned with what will happen when their father dies, who will take care of them. And, and you know, in, in this period, the object here is to marry a man with uh, some degree of wealth. Um, and, you know, do you just marry for money or is there room for love in any of this? And you have characters with some, with some uh, philosophies where that is concerned. And, oh, by the way, occasionally a zombie tries to eat your brain. So that's the world they're living in, and that's something that they have to deal with. It shapes the way the women are educated. It shapes some of the way they view the world. And it's one. And while you, you, you basically have two plots going on, you have the threat of the, of the zombies further, um, further uh, embroiling the non-zombies in conflict, and you have you know, the ongoings of the of, of the Regency era women, and I'll, I'll tell you, let's just get into it now. I really liked it. Uh, I didn't think I was going to like this movie all that much. I was very much afraid that this was going to be splatterhouse and gory, and that it was going to be sort of you know the zombie movie nonsense that I don't like that everyone else seems to. Um, I know everyone's huge fans of the Evil Dead and the Walking Dead and Day of the Dead and Night of the Living Dead and Return whatever. of the Living Dead, Diary yeah. of the Dead, Twenty Eight Days and, Later, Twenty Eight Weeks Later. And I'm just not a huge fan of zombie movies. I can tolerate them in small doses, but overall, I just don't. I don't see any. Uh, I don't get any enjoyment out of gross-looking people eating other people. So thankfully that aspect of the movie is minimized in, in a way where it isn't too gross and it, and it doesn't overwhelm the movie. I like the fact that at the end of the day, this was still a movie about people making choices and dealing with things and having relationships and having those relationships tested and that the zombie part of it is in fact just part of it. That it, you know, there wasn't a sense of irony that although it was sort of a silly mashup idea um, that, that turns the original plot of the book on its head, it still was about those people living in that world trying to figure things out for themselves, which I liked a lot. 
and I liked it more than I thought I thought I was going to. And let me let me summarize by saying, the zombie parts of it were ghoulish enough to remind you that that, that there are zombies in this thing, but not but not so gross that I had to avert my eyes. I mean, I only I only averted my eyes twice, and that's because I knew the scare was coming. I knew the scare was coming, and I didn't want to look. <laughs> One was the very beginning where they go, where he goes upstairs. The woman goes upstairs and sees the girl, and the girl looks up and blah, gross. That I didn't feel like looking at. And then there was something else where I'm like, oh, I know where this is going. <laughs> I was like, okay, I don't need to look at that. But for the, re- the rest of it was absolutely tolerable. You um, have a very weak stomach when it comes to on-screen gore. I really do. I don't like it. Uh, all right, fair enough. I'm just, I, I'm honestly, I'm a little surprised at that. I thought, and this is weird because I understand the perspective of let's not turn everything into violent, gory bloodbaths. Not everything has to be that way. Not even every zombie movie has to be that way. I, some of the better zombie movies actually, like you said, kind of minimize the graphic violence or at least you know, mask it in some way. And my issue here is that as a fan of zombie movies, and I'm a bit of a gore hound, uh, just as a disclaimer, I found the, uh, just kind of the lack of what you're supposed to get from a zombie movie like that. And again, I see the point about let's not overdo it. Personally, I just think that that, it kind of renders the zombies a tad impotent. Really? I I don't know. I think you and I are just looking at this from two different points of view. Um, I got what I thought the movie should have been. And I think what I'm hearing you say is you thought the movie should have been something and it missed the mark, which is why I think we're <laughs> landing on two different sides of this. I really, I let me this, say this. It got a lot closer to it than I thought it would. I had zero hope of this movie being any good when I went in to see it. And it's it's a lot better than I expected. I think part of the problem it runs into is that it falls way it falls too far between the two camps that it's trying to please. Fan a lot of people who prefer zombie movies, you go into a zombie movie expecting a certain amount of gore and that varies from film to film from version to version and whatnot. And it is utterly non-existent in this movie. It, it just as an, to anyone out there, if you've got, Oh, teenagers, I wouldn't take kids to this, but it's, a, it's rated PG 13. And honestly, it's kind of a soft 13. It's not a very violent movie. And if you're expecting to see a zombie movie that contains even the requisite amount of zombie violence, you're going to be disappointed on that front. The theater I saw it in was filled with girls. And directly behind me, if they weren't teenagers, they had to be early college. For one, they were they were giddy and giggly, and and they were the kind of girls who, if you weren't trying to bed one of them, you absolutely wanted to punch him in the face, or at least I did. I saw it in a theater with about six other people, so 
Well, you you go like during the day in a trench coat, you know, with the lights turned off. And I do on. not wear a trench coat. I go on Tuesdays <laughs> because it's cheap. You wear a trench coat I, and nothing else. Absolutely not true. I went to the eleven thirty show. Yeah, the first <laughs> showing of the day. Anyway, well, I went on a Friday night. I saw the seven forty five show on a Friday night in a very busy theater. Which, just as an aside, I don't know why the theater was that busy. Okay, I get like, I get you know Friday night is date night, Saturday night date night, you know, and the movie theaters are bumping. But there was nothing that came out this weekend. Absolutely nothing that should have made the theater that I saw it in as busy as it was. And I've got the numbers to prove it. They couldn't have all been there to go see Kung Fu fucking Panda. Why would you see Kung Fu Panda its second week on a Friday night? I don't understand. If it uh, was, I certainly it, wouldn't. If it were, you know, the afternoon on a Saturday, absolutely. I would understand why the place is overrun with families. But Friday night? Why were there people at the theater? Like, what was what was out that everyone felt the need to see? We'll talk about that later. But um, I don't. I couldn't tell you. But yeah, there were definitely a lot of girls. A lot of girls at this thing, and they may some of them may have been high school age. Some of them may have been college age. Looks like there were a lot of guys that would drag there on dates. Yeah, now there's more violence. There was some other movie that I saw, like Mad Max, actually, if memory serves. Uh, yeah, there's more on-screen violence in The Walking Dead than there is in this movie. Right. By a substantial margin. And that's one of the things I liked about it. Now, if, if that was disappointing to you, that's fine. That's your opinion. Then you're certainly welcome to it. I was, and it's not because I'm a you know pansy. I mean, you know, I'm going, you know, I'm looking. Apparently, that's supposed to be the hard I didn't get a single word of that because the movie doesn't bombard me with gore. I could actually focus on other things like the acting, the setting, the the relationships between characters, certain line deliveries. I was really, um, I, I, I just, I, I was able to enjoy the movie more because it took the, you know, the silly thing that it was mashing it up with and said it plays a role, but it doesn't have to overwhelm the entire feature. I suppose my point is, I feel you can make. You can have that be absolutely the case and still deliver baseline level of violence that's supposed to go along with a zombie movie. And a be- you, I'll say this. A better filmmaker could have. Give me an example of a scene where the zombies were featured, and they were, there were plenty of them. There were plenty of opportunities for you to take a scene that we saw in the movie that was relatively tame and make it extra gory. So what would you... Give me an example of what you would do with at least one scene. Let's take the opening scene. Let's take the opening scene, and I'll I'll describe it while you think. So you have no, no, I, I okay specifically with the opening scene. Okay. Honestly, the you could have extended the zombie attack on that party a little bit. Uh, there's the only indicator that the uh, I mean. It, the girl who lifts her head up and turns in half of her face, it's not even half of her face, and it's all done in uh, barely acceptable C 
CGI, which is another big gripe I have. Uh, look, I don't like CGI zombies if you're going to spend time with them. And they're, and they're deliberately stated to be the undead. Hire a makeup artist, get them to put makeup on somebody, and let's, you know, do it that way instead of... Now, if you have masses of zombies and you don't have the budget for extras and they're doing things that you can't put people through, fine. I understand, but individuals, come on, put some effort into it, put some makeup on them, and let's have a little bit of integrity about that. <laughs> but if she comes up with more blood kind of hanging off of her face, some viscera on it, and maybe even a quick pan down to the corpse that she's chewing on. Okay, I can see that. And maybe again, I'm not. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, again, we don't have to go full blown splatterhouse here. That's really not necessary. And if a movie relies on that too much, I think it's a terrible flaw. I just think that there are places you could have enhanced it. We could have shown a battalion of soldiers being overrun by zombies. Okay. Because we're constantly told that we're having to fall back from the masses of zombies. It's never shown. We see aftermath. We see people panicking. We don't actually, I mean, again, just one scene, like as they're retreating from London, you could even have it in that uh, played over Darcy's letter where his group gets overrun and he and a few others have to escape and leave behind, you know, other soldiers to be devoured. So I think I'm going to, I'm going to counter my own point with your point for you. It seems like there was a lot of um, opportunity <clears throat> to use the zombies in creative ways without it being overwhelming that were just missed. And that's sort of, and yeah. I would tell you, you're not alone in thinking that um, the, the rotten reviews, that I saw on Rotten Tomatoes pretty much said the same thing that um, you, you went ahead and you put zombies in this world and then you barely used them. Yeah. It's again, I'm, I understand your point entirely. And especially if you want to appeal to a broader audience, you don't go full blown, you know, again, splatterhouse crap. And that's fine. I appreciate restraint in filmmaking. I really do. I just think that if you're going to deliberately put zombies into a movie, there's a few things that should go along with that pursuant to the types of zombies you have. Right. Um, that opening and scene. And you I have think... the undead who deliberately are said to feast on brains here. There's a few mm. things that. Well, you never I, really I mean, see it. Now, I'm forgiving of like World War Z, which I really enjoyed. Because you have deliberately set up your zombies as infected and different from you know the moving risen dead and i okay you know again i different types of zombies behave differently that's fine and dandy in this case we have the undead who crave flesh and you didn't show a single scene of a zombie eating somebody right that's that's my gripe that and again i think a better filmmaker might have been able to insert some of those things and still keep it a PG-13 movie. Again, well, The Walking Dead's on television, for crying out loud. Our, our to, the to the filmmaker's credit, there was a lot of effort in making sure that Jane Austen's pride and actual pride and prejudice was well represented. Yeah. Uh, I, again, 
my complaint as far as that goes, I'll stand by it, but it's not it, it's it's a note. It's a note that I have. It's not anything that makes me go, This movie's terrible. I'm not a big fan of the movie, but there are things about it that are very well done. And a missed opportunity here and there is better than a flat out glaring error, by and large. I want to get into the performances of the individual actors, and I know you had some issues with um, some of the, I guess, some of the costume designs and setting set pieces. Oh, Do I? And what? But um, I want to talk about this one thing, and, and maybe, maybe you can sort of fill in the blank for me, but I feel like they introduced a mystery very early on, and then it was never followed up on. And that one of the balls... Uh, Elizabeth, Lily James' character, runs into a zombie, and the zombie doesn't attack her. Says, "I have to tell you something," and then Darcy shoots it. And then they never really talk about what it was she was trying to tell the woman. She addresses it at the time. She's like, "Hey, she was going to tell me something," and then you shot her. And I now I don't know what it was she was trying to tell me. And then you know Darcy dismisses her, but. Yeah, Darcy was already dismissive of her because she was a plain-looking woman and, you know, and not very handsome and all this other crap that he says about her. Um, <laughs> so it kind of gets it, it kind of gets shoehorned into all of that, and then they never really go back and address that because what ends up happening is the movie takes this turn where um, you find out that zombies who are <laughs> this is like Twilight now, zombies who are feeding on animals are not have have not lost their humanity as such, and they're sort of they're they're zombies sort of living as a culture, uh, still able to think, still able to communicate with one another, and they are um, eating pigs' brains as a, as a sacrament, you know, and they are maintaining their humanity that way. And so you have the character of what was it, um, Wickham. The, uh, Wickham. You have the character of Wickham who is trying to propose, you know, a peace with the zombies uh, because they can be reasoned with, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't know if that ever, if, if that goes to what this woman was trying to tell Elizabeth early on in the movie. I don't know if they're one and the same. And I really thought it was sort of sloppy. They're one and the same. It's, it's, I agree that's with you clear. that it's, no, it, it isn't. It really isn't. Uh, okay. Because you're only reason that it is. And I'm and, I, and I'm gonna shut up so that you can tell me why. But I'm telling you, as somebody who paid very close attention and was waiting for that to get picked up on, I have no idea why how that connects. The only way it connects is in reference to the other the group of orphans that get in, and you have the kind of lead orphan at that other party who says, "Our new friend showed us the way in," and it, it's a very loose tie in in the sense that these are zombies in places they're not supposed to be how did they get in there and it was actually again it's actually Wickham who has maintained his military intelligence after being bitten and is you know, subverting the human race but it's it's not stated clearly it's not they don't do a very good job of tying those two things together no, it almost needed like a, like a narration, like narration for dummies kind of a thing where, you know, where it was I who let the zombies in and then, you know, kind of going back over all of these things because I honestly didn't get it. 
no, I yeah, it needed something like that. I mean, as soon as you know, as soon as you are, as soon as you realize that Wickham's actually, I mean, it's painfully obvious early on to those of us who watch a lot of movies like this. It's really obvious that it's Wickham. But as soon as that's revealed, it's just kind of assumed that he's responsible for all of it. And it really did need something to go along with it. I mean, even if during his fight with Darcy, he's just like, I've been sneaking zombies into places you've been for the, you know, ever since that ball, ever since I got Mrs. Featherstone into that ball where, you know, where you first met Elizabeth in an effort to undermine you, to kill you, whatever. I mean, just, it needed something to go right. along with it because again, you either think there's a larger point there that there isn't, or you just wind up kind of making the assumption that, well, it just falls in with everything else that Wickham did because, Hey, he's the bad guy. That's really the only thing I didn't like about the movie, to be honest with you. Um, I know you had some more gripes, so I'm going to back off and let you sort of go through some of your, uh, your nitpicking. <laughs> but um, that was the only, that was my only major problem with it. The rest of it, I, I thought Lily James did fine as Elizabeth. I thought, I thought she, ca- she really carries the movie on her shoulders. And I think she does a really good job of it. My only complaint about her entire performance is she does one line reading, one line reading that I absolutely hated and was like, if this whole movie is like this, I'm going to start throwing my, I'm going to be like a monkey and start throwing shit at the screen. Which Um, one? It's very early on. It's um, when you first meet the characters, as a matter of fact, and she said something along the lines of, uh, I don't know where I would be or I would never give up my Shaolin training. Yeah. yeah. Was the fucking director asleep? How could that have been an okay line reading? That needed to be, they needed to go back and she needed to read that differently. It's, it's a, the line itself is fine. It needed to be slowed down and be less pompous. I mean, it, it's, just, it's just terrible. And it's a small nitpick because the rest of her performance is fine. Um, but I still, I, I heard her do that and I'm like, Oh God, I hope the whole <laughs> fucking movie's not like this. And thankfully it wasn't everybody else, you know, does their readings pretty straight. Um, and I, you know, and I accept the world that we're living in where, you know, these girls are sent far and wide to learn to defend themselves. The other thing that I'm going to add to that is. One of the things I was expecting to see in the movie and was glad wasn't there was I thought this was going, we were, we were going to constantly sort of break the fourth wall um, or, you know, we were going to do sort of a Charlie's Angels, hip, modern sort of, oh, look at these badass girls and their badass swords. And thankfully, they do one scene that's sort of like that the very first time the girls fight the zombies and then they stop doing it. And then, you know, anytime that they fight zombies, it looks like it it keeps in consistency with the rest of how the movie looks instead of being this sort of, you know, um, stylized uh, zombie killer violence thing that really felt out of place in the movie. And I was worried going into it that that's all this was going to be, was that that Quentin Tarantino stylized violence thing that seems very out of place when you're talking about the fucking Regency era. No, I agree. I'm okay with that scene in the sense that as soon as it's over, we, you know, we realize that we're seeing it from Darcy's perspective. And 
this is the first time he sees Elizabeth in combat and he's instantly smitten. So it's framed in such a way as to put the audience in his shoes and how he perceives it. And I'm okay with that. Right. I'm with you though, about worrying that this was going to turn into a, you know, parkour off of walls, Hong Kong <laughs> Kung Fu style kill zombies. Cause I, I that I would not, ugh, I would have torn that to pieces. I yeah. absolutely would have. But I think that goes to the bigger point that I was trying to make about this movie is that this movie had a lot of opportunities to be really silly and it doesn't ever get silly. Yeah. The concept itself is silly, but I can buy, you know, it's kind of like watching a superhero movie. You can buy the concept so long as everybody else in the movie is taking it seriously, which they do. There was respect paid to the world that they were living in so that, you know, I went along for the ride and I accepted, okay, this is, they were consistent within their own universe and they took it seriously and I'm okay with all of that. Um, Because had it not been that way, I would have hated the movie. And I, when I went in expecting to hate it, because that's kind of the way Hollywood is, is they don't take them, they don't take things seriously. Uh, But this did. So I was very happy about that. (laughs) Now my, my gripes and you mentioned their nitpicking, I'll give you a couple of them that are a little bit nitpicky. I think I have a couple that are slightly more valid. Um, <laughs> one, this bugged me personally. Uh, the fact that Darcy has all of one outfit for the entire movie. I mean, the only thing this man changes from start to finish about his attire is whether or not he's wearing a long leather coat or a long cloth coat. That's it. Everything else and again, at various points, he's, you know, undressed to various degrees. And I say undressed not in the nudity sense, but in the sense of, you know, they, those were very layered, very uh, superfluous clothing choices that were made in that time period. It's not a, that's not a knock on the designer. So at different times, he's wearing more or less of them. But it's always the same thing. And to the point where he even gets married in it. And I kind of went, Really? Because my, my honest to God thought, when they pulled, when they start that ceremony, I went, what do you bet he's wearing the long leather duster? <laughs> and hey, sure enough. You know, Jewish woman, you got married in that? What's wrong with you? I'm okay with different attire, but come on, the same thing you've been wearing since scene one? <laughs> we We talked about this off air, and I said he looks like you know, he, you don't get the sense that he's in the military ba- based on what he's wearing. Like, he looks more like an inspector or some sort of religious authority that you would get, you know, like in the movie Sleepy Hollow or uh, I'd even Crucible or something like part that. Of, I'd even accept he's part of a, oh, different branch of the military. Uh, because if you watch a lot of, like, movies about Nazi Germany... Uh, you know, the Gestapo, which is a peacekeeping organization, dresses differently from the SS, which is a different branch of the military from the infantry, uh, so on and so forth. And that's true. I mean, again, everyone has different uniforms, but it is explicitly stated that A, he's a colonel in the military, and B, he's regular army and just apparently has no use for the traditional military uniform, and I guess no one cares. Uh, I have a minor gripe that I know, I know no one else knows or cares about this. 
<laughs> Especially oh, it, you. If I had not prefaced that, you'd go, you're the only one who noticed that. When they mention that there's a detachment be, uh, being stationed in the town uh, that is kind of the central location for the country estates, they mention that it's militia. No, it's the regular army. I can tell because they're all wearing army uniforms. There's a difference well, you... between militia and regular army. There is a substantial difference in a lot of ways. And again, I'll admit, I doubt anyone else knows or nope. cares. <laughs> no one It bothered cares. me. Then that's fine. You have the right to be bothered by anything that you want, but you stand alone, sir, much like the chief. I, I, I am fair. I, I understand. Probably the only one. Um, what was the other? Man, I thought Lena Haiti was utterly wasted. Um, yeah, but when they finally drag her out and give her something to do, it's sort of, okay, well, that was a little, that, that was underwhelming. Thank, thank God she's not carrying this picture. Well, my thing is that she could carry the movie. She has that capability as an actress. I think her character is, again, I think she as an actress is utterly wasted on that character. Well, I don't think they gave her anything to do with it. No, they really you know. didn't. I mean, uh, look, you could have it, almost written that character out completely. Well, that's the thing. You know, we we talk about Chekhov's um, Chekhov's gun, right? Chekhov's yeah. gun. We talk yeah. about Chekhov. We talk about things like Chekhov's gun, and you know how like, if you're going to introduce something in a movie, you better damn well, you know, you better damn well use it. And you know, here we have a situation where. They introduce this character who's supposed to be a badass swordsman and zombie killer, and then we don't really see her doing much of either. She essentially exists to bully uh, Elizabeth, which then why did you make her a badass zombie killer? She could have just as easily been in that same role and just been a hoity duchess. And her role would have been more effective than what she ends up doing. Yeah, I was dying for just one action sequence where she gets to cut loose on a horde of zombies. Well, I mean, even if they, even if you don't see her killing zombies, you know, like those days are behind me, that sort of thing, then she needed to be the one to challenge, you know, if you are going to marry Darcy, who I have betrothed to this other person who I think is her better than you, then, you know, then I will fight you and, you know, for his, I will fight you for his honor. And if you best me in combat, I will bless your marriage. If not, you die by my sword. And okay, at least then you're using the character as you've written her. But instead, they do none of those things. Yeah, the excuse being that, you know, I think the actual line is to take up swords against you would be to take up a sword against England, which is silly. Silly reasoning, silly line placement. Yeah, just So then we get to watch uh, Elizabeth, you know, beat up some six four, three hundred pound guy, which is fine too. But mm-hmm. it just again, it. I think your you know analogy to Chekhov's gun is accurate. You set her up to be the best swordswoman in all of Britain, which I believe is the actual line used, and she never actually fights anything. I have to say, you know, it, I, I brought up Tarantino. And I would have liked to have seen this movie directed by him because Tarantino tends not to waste characters. 
And if you know, and like if you look at Kill Bill, you know, he created the Swordswoman character, um, <clears throat> this assassin, and everything that he says about these characters, you actually get to see in action. So I'm imagining a scenario where, at least as she's being introduced, there's a flashback to her cutting through a horde of zombies, and you at least get to see how she got to have that title. And in this movie, it's like, the you know, between the writing and the directing, there's no attempt to show you anything. Everything is just, you know, it's just told to you, and that's not good movie making. That That's a waste. Now, it makes up for it in other ways. You know, the relationship between... I'll tell you one of my favorite scenes of the movie is actually Darcy and Elizabeth um, fighting at the, at the home. You know. That's great. That, that, that's, a, that's a really well-done sequence. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's, again, it's utilizing the characters as they're written. You know, it's creating... You know, they're, they're able to have this argument, but also, you know, it's a fun, like, fist fight scene. Um, you know, it tells you a lot about the characters and everything else. And I love the way it ends, you know, with him, like, you you know, she, she gets him good physically, but even better um, emotionally. And he goes, I am wounded, sort of, you know, double meaning there. And then, he's, you know, and then he sort of awkwardly leaves. Um, and it's, it's I, I believe the, his final line is, you know, you've, you've wounded me and said quite enough at this point. <laughs> <laughs> right. And it's great, you know. It's one of the best scenes of the whole of the whole movie. Um, and so, while I can so, so while they wasted Lena Headey, they they thrusted a lot of this movie and a lot of what saved the movie on Billy James. And she does yeah, a great job. She and uh, the guy who plays Darcy, Sam Riley, uh, do a really good job of you know carrying this movie being able to somehow balance you know, a traditional kind of very serious Jane Austen adaptation with, you know, throwing zombies into it. Um, so I know I was talking to my wife and again, I've never read Pride and Prejudice. I asked her if there, if in the middle of Pride and Prejudice, there was also a war and she says there was, I said, okay, well, they, they, they do a war here too, but it's a war with the zombies. Which then leads to the, you know the question: What did you think of the final fight sequences? You know the the big uh, fights with the zombies, and then the and then and then the ultimate ending of the movie. I, I'm dying to ask you what you thought of uh, that the the final final scene before the credit the credits finished rolling. Uh, <laughs> again, first of all, I'm not a big fan of doing your zombies. Via CGI, I'm. I, there are times when I understand it, but by and large, I'm not a fan. I, I honestly thought that uh, Elizabeth had actually killed Wickham when she saves Darcy, right? And they just didn't bother actually showing it because it's that kind of movie. Instead of, so I honestly thought he was dead. Uh, I hate hate sequel baiting. I really do. Unless you have a property that is by its, that is going to be, you know, if you have, if you're adapting a trio of books into a trilogy of films. Okay. I understand. I am aware there are more movies coming. I understand that, you know, there's, you're playing a bit of the long game 
as long as your movie is in and of itself well done and well contained, I'm going to be okay with, you know, a few things that have to be discussed or wrapped up in the next book or in the next movie. I'm okay with it like that. I really think it's lazy and stupid to do that with a property that you have no, that, where there are questions. I complained up and down about this when it came to Pan last year. I thought half that movie was just, well, we'll get it in the sequel. We don't have to write it correctly now. And <laughs> hey, guess how well that turned out for you. Uh, there were things touched on in this movie that, again, I think it's like, well, we'll get it in the sequel. Well, a couple of problems here. One, there's not a sequel in novel form. You're going to be shooting, you're going to be firing blind there. Two, you don't need it. You're supposed to tell a self-contained story, so you know, what are supposed to be you know, little hints about the four horsemen of the apocalypse having joined the Earth, and oh, the Antichrist is going to lead them, and well, we're losing the war. And I, I get that you maybe don't want to actually solve the problem of the zombie plague in this movie. I, I, I understand, like... Well, we're not going to have them go on a grand quest to unravel the cause of zombification. Okay, that's fine. Don't tell that story. That's fine and dandy. Don't – again, all that stuff, it just screamed of sequel bait. Like, well, we're not going to explain it here, but boy, if we make enough money and we can get a greenlit sequel, then yeah, then we'll touch on it. Like, no. Either get that already down – and get it, you know, in contract form that you're going to make more. Or just write a really good self-contained story that doesn't have, oh, wait, was she actually seeing the Horsemen of the Apocalypse? Uh, are they actually going to be here? What, you know, No, you have just created holes in your narrative that are only going to annoy the audience. Yeah, it and, doesn't really, I mean, it, it feel like it closes a lot of the loops on the Pride and Prejudice stuff, obviously, with... With Elizabeth and um, Darcy getting married, and her sister marrying his friend, and all of that, but it leaves the zombie stuff wide open with no, with no um, satisfying ending. It just, you know, I don't. When it was all over, I didn't know. I, I really wasn't even aware. I think they blew up the bridge. That was the big thing. They blew up the bridge so the zombies couldn't get across, and because then there's so much focus on did Darcy live through that or not, you don't really have enough time to wonder, well, what did this do to your world exactly? And I'm sitting here thinking, I was, I was looking at the bigger picture of this. If the zombies have taken control of most of England and they're blowing up bridges so that nothing can get inside, eventually they're going to go through all their resources. And the thing Well, actually, they- uh, what happens there is uh, you have, trying to remember how they set it up, you have like kind of like a imagine like a donut, and the whole of the donut is London. Then all of what would be the you know dough, the is what they refer to as the in between, and then the outer rim of the donut is a giant wall to keep the zombies out. What they wind up doing at the end is locking off London, which has fallen, so that now all they so that now people are almost entirely living in the in-between area. If I'm reading that, if I have understood what was presented to me on film correctly. 
Well, I think the very nature that we're both struggling with this, that it wasn't it wasn't really presented very well. Yeah, I, a, a couple of more, you know, shots where they're just talking about, you know, the greater geography of the war. You know, here's where the lines are, because it's not presented in a very clear manner, even though they actually put a map on screen. You know, they right. don't well, give everything to, proper context. I go back to my initial thing. I think the director was very, very good at paying homage and getting right the pride and prejudice elements of this. And then the zombies were kind of an afterthought in every possible way, in the way that they looked and how they, and how they informed the plot in how the, and how their part of the plot was resolved. Um, one quick thing about it was, so they show the marriage and they are getting married at the same time. And then of course they turn around and lo and behold, Wickham is leading an army charge of zombies straight at them. And I thought it was funny. Everyone kind of laughed at that. They're like, oh, here it goes. And then of course, you know, fade to black. I wish, the only thing I wished was that when, as they were charging them, all you basically see is Darcy's sort of oh shit face. I would have liked to have seen Darcy and Elizabeth and kind of one final pull out their swords and go, yeah. I, I didn't mean an Aragorn, let's go kill some orc. Um, but, you know, some some degree of uh, of them facing the horde of zombies would have been nice. That it just sort of... It, for a movie that doesn't really lend itself to the horror genre very well, it was very much a horror ending. And I'm like, oh, fuck. You know, I just thought it was sort of a cheap way to end it. It is. The, I honestly, I have a deep and abiding disgust for the lazy way that a lot of horror movies end with, oh, you killed the monster, but oh boy, there sure are 40 more outside your house right now. Right. That, that final scare that makes no sense. Yeah, it. I, I think it's lazy. I think it's... There's this weird notion that a horror movie has to end on a downer note or it has to be excessively bleak. That's fine if you have built your movie around that, if that is part of its fabric. It's not okay if you just don't know how to end your story. And that's because that is honestly the most cliched ending in all of horror. It bugs me. It really bugs me because it's cheap and it's lazy. And I absolutely can't stand it when it's cheap and lazy. It's both cheap and gay, sir. Yeah, it's... Again, sometimes it works out very well. Uh, The Mist, for example, is a... Sets it up... uh, My gripe with... My gripe with The Mist is how they got to that point. More so than going with the very bleak ending. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with the twist that, you know, again, makes things bad at the end of a horror movie. I really am. I hate the fact that everybody and their dog writes a horror story, shoots a horror movie, even loosely, now must end it with a crappy twist that is going, that leads to everyone dying. It's, it, it bothers me to no end. Every time I go see a horror movie, I'm waiting as the movie's wrapping up. I'm like, all right, where is it? 
because <laughs> I know it's coming. I, right. I can't tell. Uh, here's the thing about horror movies, and partially I blame people misinterpreting Shyamalan's work. At this point in time, if you want to actually have a twist ending to a horror movie, don't have a twist ending. <laughs> so, yeah, again, it, I, it struck me as lazy. It struck me as sequel baiting. It, I, not a fan. All right, um, I really don't have a whole lot else to say. I thought the I thought the B minus that it's that it uh, I think earned on Cinema Score. Um, I, I was about right. I would have actually gone with a, with a B because I really did enjoy. I was entertained. Um, it was better than I thought it was going to be. I sort of shared with you some of my quips and quibbles about it, but overall, I was taken in by the story. I enjoyed the acting. I thought it looked pretty. Um, and like I said. Quibbles aside, issues aside, uh, I thought his handling of the zombies as part of that world was done well enough. So, um, you know, not a movie I think I'm going to rent on, uh, you know, when it comes on demand or anything like that, or one that I feel an overwhelming need to show my kids or my wife, but I also wouldn't hate hate watching it again either. It's, 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 it kind of falls into the... I like seeing it once. I don't need to see it again. Category. Yeah, it's it's again. again, Complained about aspects of it that I think are generally speaking valid complaints. My occasional nitpicking about things that only uh, that only bother me aside. I agree with you about the acting. Uh, Lily James acquits herself very well, basically carrying the movie. Sam Riley's Mister Darcy is fine. His voice. Um, it actually kept bothering me while I was watching it because I could swear I'd heard his voice before. Uh, it turned out I hadn't, but I think I figured out why because he sounds a little bit like Michael Wincott. Uh, he's got a higher voice than Wincott, but there's that same kind of gravelly uh, tone to it. And, I, and that was uh, – I spent a bunch of the movie trying to figure out where I'd heard him before. He's, he's Diaval from Maleficent. I haven't seen it. You saw Maleficent. No, I just uh, officiated the debate between you and Pat. Haven't seen it, actually. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Well, he's also, he's also going to be in Ghost in the Shell in 2017. Oh, I'm worried about that one. <laughs> uh, so let's talk I, about... So we, go, but uh, the last thing I wanted to talk about real quickly, um, Matt Smith, uh, better known as the most recent Doctor Who, not the current Doctor, but the one right before him, playing this effeminate little Nancy boy <laughs> amused me to no end. He, I'm not a fan of a, He does a great job with his part. He he was perfect. <laughs> he really does. I mean, I haven't seen a whole lot of him as Doctor Who. I don't watch Doctor Who. I'm not an insult to the property because I know parts of our audience do. There's a lot of overlap there. I simply don't care for it. I'm not insulting it. But if seeing, you knowing Doctor that this was Doctor Who, and now he's this, you know, foppish, uh, just character. It, it's moderately. It's even funnier if you understand his back. You know where he was right before this film, as you know, the Doctor. If you, if and now you haven't watched Doctor Who, and I've never seen an episode of Doctor Who in my life. He was also Skynet from Terminator Genesis. Ugh, that movie. 
Anyway, uh, so final consensus here: this movie is probably it's get. I would venture to say it's better than you think it is if you haven't seen it. Uh, if you expect the zombies to be featured, or again, there's a. I think there's a level of either on-screen kind of violence or at least on-screen intensity that is a prerequisite for a zombie movie that is absent here. But apart from that, again, it's well-made. Don't be afraid to take your teenagers to it. There's, uh, I don't remember a whole lot of profanity. There's absolutely no nudity. And the violence is, again, almost completely absent. There's very little there's of no, it. There's no nudity, but there's a lot of Lily James's heaving bosom. Which is not a phrase found in Pride and Prejudice, but I suppose if you were to, you know, adapt it to today, you would probably have to throw a bit of that. If you were to rewrite Pride and Prejudice for the modern era, you would turn it into a cheesy bodice ripper, and the phrase "heaving bosoms" would be featured at least seventeen times over a over the course of the novel. Because it's seventeen times in the movie. Lily James has a role in the movie, and so does her heaving bosom. It should have gotten its own credit. Uh, yeah, there's a few sequences where it's deliberately framed that way. It's all that's on the screen. <laughs> it is not all bosom. that's on the screen. It's it's literally it's Lily James and her heaving bosom. Yeah, I imagine her ability to breathe heavily to accentuate what she's. Uh, what the character is going through featured prominently in her casting, and she's which is a credit to her as an actress. Woman. Hang on, and Lily James is, we're not talking Sable here. She doesn't have, uh, yeah, as Jen from the Casual Heroes once said, she doesn't exactly have retard tits. Lily James is, you know, is an average look, is an averagely built female with, you know, a decent sized chest, and I don't want to be gross here, but I mean, she. It's not like he, she's on screen and it's, oh, here comes Tits McGee. You know, no, that's much more, and I don't mean this as an, I don't, I hate to frame what I'm about to say this way because she's actually a better actress than that, but that's kind of what Alexandria, Alexandra Daddario has going for her right now is, you know, large breasts. Uh, what's the chick that was, she played the um, foreign girl from American Pie? Don't know, never seen it. Um, how about the Denise something or other that used to be with Denise Charlie Richards? Sheen? Okay, Denise Richards was Hootie McBoob. Okay, she walked on screen <laughs> and all there was was tits and ass. Um, the, the girl that Michael Bay was obsessed over for the first, like, three Transformers films. Megan Fox. Megan Fox. Tits McGee. That's all, you know, all she is. I, would I not think say... Lily James is a, has a better figure than Megan Fox, but that's just me. Okay, but we're talking about her whole figure here, and I'm saying, like, there's a – what I'm trying to point out to people in this review is that there's a lot of focus on Lily James's breasts, okay? And and it's and I don't know why there was a lot of focus on the breasts, because the breasts were not that big. You know, it, it would be one thing if we were talking, again, about retard tits, but we're not. They – and if you needed another reason why Mark and I will never run for public office. <laughs> I'm lucky to get outside and run around the block these days, let alone for public office. Hey, now. 
All right. Uh, all right. Uh, again, don't be. I, teenagers can probably enjoy this. It feels like that's the demographic they were trying to hit more so than Jane Austen fans are clearly, you know, fans of zombie horror. And when I say, you know, that's the, the pro, again, what I said at the top, the problem is they fall way too far between those two camps. They wound up appealing to virtually no one. Because, Mark, how much money did this thing make its opening weekend? Six million? Oh, boy. My favorite part of this whole process. On a $28 million budget, the box office for the first weekend is $6.1 million. I guessed right. $6.1 million. It came in... uh, It came in in sixth, actually, for the weekend. Oh, sixth. Jeez. Here, let me read the paragraph here from Box Office Mojo, if you you don't mind. Landing in sixth place is the aforementioned Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies with a paltry $5.2 million and a B-minus cinema score. Screen Gems doesn't stand to lose much on this one, as it was fully financed by Cross Creek Pictures, but with a budget reported to be around $28 million and a domestic run that may struggle to meet $16 million, this one is going to be hoping for big returns internationally. Uh, right now, where it stands, um, like I said, $28 million budget, it's done 769000 uh, foreign markets and six million two hundred and sixty thousand domestic. So yeah, it's at, it's currently at about seven million worldwide uh, as of today. Uh, this being uh, Wednesday, and yeah, it's it's not doing well. Um, it's 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 crawling up slowly, but it, you know, like I said, it's it also be- not the type of movie that is generally going to play well internationally. <laughs> no. This is the type of movie that's going to make most of its money in America, England, and maybe Australia. I think if they're lucky, they're going to make their money back in rentals, um, digital rentals. That is, because uh, who the hell like you know, that's where they're that's that's got to be their only hope at this point. Yeah, um, the, the the biggest thing they can do is get the thing out of the theaters quickly. Uh, and you know, throw it into the digital and hope that um, hope that people get watch Netflix it. to pay them to put it up on the, on their streaming site and their streaming right. service. Right, which it may do well. I mean, look, this didn't draw people into the theaters the way that I'm sure you know Sony and Screen Gems uh, would have wanted. On the other hand, I could see this one being watched by people at home. You know, every kid right now has a Netflix account, and I'm sure there's plenty of kids who. Much like Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, once it's, once they see it on Netflix, they'll you know what stops them from watching it there. Um, as far as who won the rest of the weekend, Kung Fu Panda, second week in a row, folks. Kung Fu Panda top Super Bowl weekend, finishing number one for the second week in a row. Well, this weekend's three newcomers didn't exactly inspire upon release. The Coens hailed Caesar, performed as expected, though that isn't saying much. Well, the choice ended up topping Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies, which couldn't even reach $6 million. Meanwhile, the big winner of the weekend is Star Wars The Force Awakens, which cost $900 million domestically and became the only, only the third film to ever make over $2 billion worldwide. Still hasn't passed fucking Titanic, though. 
I'm very upset about well, this. Well, two things about that. Titanic has been appropriately adjusted for inflation and had a second release years after its original theatrical run. Yeah. I suppose so. Um, so, yeah, Kung Fu Panda, second week in a row at number one. Hill Caesar came in at number two. Star Wars at number three. Um, I was raped by a bear, uh, came in at number four. <clears throat> that is not the plot of that movie. <laughs> you ever been raped by a bear? Didn't you use that as your descriptor for a fight featuring Matt Mitrione once? <laughs> I may have. I may have, Robert. I may have. Um, I would say, like, either he got knocked out by Sean Jordan or knocked – I think it was he got knocked out by Sean Jordan in, like, 15 seconds. And you said, like, well, that looked like a bear raping. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think I might have said maul at the time. But the yeah, comedian like who, that. But the comedian who, who, who did the joke, it's, it's – have you ever been raped by a bear? Um, okay, so Nicholas Spock is, is – uh, the choice came in at number I five. I beg of you. People, stop seeing those movies. <laughs> They're all the same. They're all stupid. I blame the notebook entirely for this, because if that one flops, we never have to deal with another Nicholas Sparks adaptation. But now, because the notebook is so universally beloved by people who beloved that kind of stuff, Every other year, hey, there's another Nicholas Sparks adaptation, and they've all been bad. <laughs> all right. My rant on popular culture. Out of the way there. So, Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies at number six. And rounding up top ten, the finest hours in its second week uh, at number seven, right along to featuring Robert Winfrey's two favorite actors, Kevin Hart and Ice Cube. <laughs> I don't have anything against Ice Cube apart from his choices. He's actually a very he's actually a fine actor. I don't uh, think Kevin Hart is funny at all. At number nine is The Boy, twenty sixteen. And number ten is Doity Grandpa. Doity Grandpa. Even so Robert De Niro can't make Zach Efron tolerable. Um as far as what did the critics think, uh Pride Fresh to Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies has a 43% on the tomato meter. However, the audience score, 61% liked it. Um, this is going to be one of those times where I'm not going to read the, uh, the the reviews. We we talked about this movie enough, uh, I think, and I think we, we gave a pretty good overall review of it. Um, I will tell you oh, that... We also Google tended is- to agree with the reviewers this time around. Our opinions yeah. generally fell in line with theirs. Yeah, I, I went I went through the the rotten reviews and I was like, eh, that's more or less. Uh, so instead, I will tell you that Zoolander two, thirty seven percent. All right, <laughs> hang on, hang on. I want to share this with you though. So I Pride really Pride Prejudice and Zombies is at forty three percent. Okay. Yes. Uh, rotten. The choice, the Nicholas Sparks movie, eight percent. Zoolander 2, 37. It was right in there. Zoolander ah. 2 is not as good as Prejudice and Zombies, according to credit. I could have told you that beforehand. Well, hang on, but it's a hell of a lot better than Nicholas Fox's The Choice. I really <laughs> don't think that's accurate either. <laughs> Look, uh, let me be perfectly clear to everyone about this. 
I hate the collected works of Ben Stiller. If you could convert my hatred of Ben Stiller's filmography into power, I could run all of Central America. <laughs> I would. I have only seen Zoolander once. It was under duress. Now, how could I possibly be duress into seeing something I already knew I was going to hate? They put it in while I was donating plasma, and they get mad at you if you try to yank the needle out of your arm. <laughs> Zoolander, why they waited 15 years to make a sequel that no one really cared about when it was released baffles me. I know it has this cult following, but the reason we're reviewing Deadpool next week is because I would rather slam my hand in a door repeatedly than see Zoolander 2. Give me a choice between paying money to sit through that movie or getting kicked in the balls. I will go ahead and kick me. I just hate it that much. Uh, ben Stiller's work on screen is anathema to me in every conceivable way. It is personally, intellectually, emotionally, ethically, morally revolting. And that's why I'm going to tolerate Ryan Reynolds being naked on screen. I, uh, I'll go ahead and say this again. I mentioned this at the top of the show. I think Mark's going to wind up enjoying Deadpool. I am more than prepared to be the only person on God's green earth saying that movie sucks. I haven't seen it yet, so I might be wrong. I'm trying to prepare myself to be wrong about it. But if I'm right, I because I, I don't care for Ryan Reynolds as a general rule. And I think that if you do not like Ryan Reynolds being a snarky douchebag, that movie has nothing to offer. So... As you've been ranting about uh, Ben Stiller, as you were wont to do, I've been playing around with the Rotten Tomatoes tomato meter, and I just want to All share right. this with you, and then I, I think we are ready to uh, do plugs and get out of here. So I limited the Rotten movies that have been released this year so far to just 0 to 10%. Okay, so these are all 10% Rotten or less. Um, and it's interesting because most of them also, the audience hated as well, except for the choice. The choice got us well, 70. hey, all of your, all of the, you know, menopausal, hormonally imbalanced, emotionally susceptible women are going to love it. That's what Nicholas Sparks appeals to, the same way that Michael Bay appeals to hormonally driven teenagers who love watching things go boom. I like how, like, when I talk about, you know, Lily James's breasts, you make a remark about, oh, he'll never be able to run for office, and here you are making fun of women far and wide. I am not making fun of women far and wide. I am pointing out that if it, if women fall into a specific timeline where they are hormonally imbalanced, and there's any number of reasons that can occur, and I'm not being, I'm not trying to be dismissive or diminu- or you know, insulting. That too. Women right. have more ho- hormonal imbalances 
than men do as a general rule because of their physiology. This is not an insult. This is a simple biological fact. Okay, Mr. Wizard. Let me finish my, my, way, let me finish my report. The same way that teenagers are all over the place because their hormones are out of whack and they're susceptible to, wow, thing go boom. So, um, moving on from the choice, we have Dirty Grandpa at 9%, but 51% of the audience liked it. Fifty Shades of Black, which is the Williams brother Brett parody of uh, Fifty Shades of Grey, which is seven percent. Twenty-four percent of the audience liked it. Norm of the you, North. You twenty-four percent. Smack <laughs> yourself. It was the Norm of the North, by the way. We had seven percent of the audience who like who uh, we have seven percent on Rotten Tomatoes as far as the critical score, and then twenty-four percent of the audience actually liked the thing. Um, and then finally, some odd reason, Point Break is on this list, where it's got a 9%. I, I don't think it got its wide release until 2016. Okay. Well, Point Break got 9% critical review, and only 30%, 38% of the audience liked it. So you, you, you 38%. Shame. There is not a single one of these movies that, has, that had a positive uh, in terms of audience score except for the choice. Again, when you appeal, when you know your demographic, your demographic will stick up for you. The people who like Norm of the North, I'm sure were mothers who were just having fun with their kids. Probably. I mean, all right. All right. Mark and I are back next week for Deadpool. Oh yeah. Mark, you are aware there's a 20 minute sex scene in this movie, right? Well, I'm taking my wife. I'm sure she'll enjoy it. Uh, and yeah, I my jokes aside about Ryan Reynolds, there's yeah, guys. I this has been brought up because apparently people are stupid. <laughs> guys, parents, this is an R-rated movie. This is not just an R-rated movie because R rating has lost a lot of its meaning. It covers a huge spectrum. This is what my parents, when discussing movies that I might be able to see when I was, you know, a kid and had, and that was a consideration. Hang on, before you continue with this, um, everything Robert's about to say was was also said between myself, Ronnie, and Jesse Starcher on one of the latest episodes of Source Material, where we lit into the mother uh, of the kid who petitioned for there to be a PG-13 cut of Deadpool. First of all, it would be five minutes long. (laughs) Second of all, this is a hard R. This movie is probably bordering on NC-17. It's full of excessive, effusive, continuous profanity, gratuitous, Consistent, constant, on-screen violence, full frontal nudity, prolonged sex sequences, and for some reason you all think it's okay because it's a Marvel property. (laughs) What the hell is the matter with you people? (laughs) Settle settle down there, Beavis. Uh, Uh, So, yes. 
We will be doing Deadpool next week. And why are we doing Deadpool? Because as as Robert mentioned, he'd rather die than have to. I did not him. say die. I would inflict tons of temporary pain on myself. He'd rather slam his dick in the door than go see Zoolander two. Um, well, look if you want to re- if you want to split this and not see Deadpool and you'd rather see How to Be Single instead, you have that oh. option. That look. February, this is a terrible weekend for me no matter what, all right? There is not an option that I would enjoy seeing, so I'm going to see Deadpool, and we're going to see what we have to say about it afterwards. Um, then the next two weeks we're taking off because the movies that are coming out are Race, Risen, The Witch, Eddie and the, Eddie the Eagle, Gods of Egypt, and Triple Nine, and there's not a single one of those movies I'm interested in, not one. Really? You're not interested in Eddie the Eagle? Nope. That's a little surprising to me. I mean, the rest I, mean, I understand. I mean, I suppose if I if I sat and and watched the uh, the trailer for it, I might get interested. But it's really I don't want to spend the money. That's fair enough. Movies aren't um, cheap, you know, and we don't get paid for this. Well, uh, to anyone have... out there who would like to feature Mark and I as a regular part of your lineup, if you want to, you know, try and get us, if you're prepared to, you know, credential us to get us to see movies early and for free as critics, I'd uh, call Mark. He's available. That's right. Um, now, March 4th, uh, while everyone else is going to see London Has Fallen, we will be going to see Zootopia. Why? Because I have children. That's why. And uh, you know, Yeah. And I don't have a whole lot of hope for London Has Fallen, even though I enjoyed why, uh, Olympus Has Fallen. Was a better Die Hard movie than the last two Die Hards. So uh, that's that'll be the movie we're reviewing after Deadpool will be will be Zootopia, and then we're taking another break until Batman versus Superman comes out. Uh, uh, <laughs> Mark and I might. I there's a cup. There's some movies that come out between now and then that I might wind up going to see, and if. I wind up seeing it and someone else is willing to be on and review it with me. That'll happen. If not, I'm just, I am providing a loophole in case something comes up. Ken Cloverfield Lane, the brothers Grimsby, the perfect match, the young Messiah. Cloverfield Lane looks somewhat interesting. Um, The young Messiah. No, that's not the, Actually, that they played the trailer for that in front of, uh, oddly enough, in front of Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies, and uh, that kind of a tear tear for me. Uh, the Diversion series, Allegiant, Midnight Special, and The Bronze. Again, I'm simply providing a loophole in case something comes up. Sure. <laughs> anyway, I won't be reviewing anything. Between uh, Zootopia and Batman vs Superman: Dawn of Justice, and there's a really good chance I'm not either. I'm just, and if you want to stay tuned, and uh, if that changes, please like the Radlichen Broadcasting Network on Facebook. That is the most consistent way to get updates about our schedule, what's going on. So like us on there. You can follow Mark on Twitter, uh, where he will promote these things occasionally. He's at Radlich Broadcasting. Yes. I'm actually just at Mark Radledge. 
at Mark Radlich, okay. You can follow me on Twitter. Uh, I promote the shows that I do, occasionally things that I write, give my thoughts uh, very infrequently. I use Twitter more as a, my means of keeping up with aspects of the news than for airing my personal opinions because I don't think 140 characters is enough to give a coherent, nuanced expression of thought, but that's just me. Uh, uh, I'm at Winfrey MMA, W-I-N-F-R-E-E. Real quick, my Thursday shows. Tomorrow night, Long Road to Ruin, uh, two weeks in a row. Last week we did The Hobbit. We finished up the whole Lord of the Rings series. Uh, this week we're looking at Shaft because it's Black History Month. So we're celebrating Shaft. all things. He's a, dude, my wife was so funny this morning. I, she started doing the Shaft thing. I was like, Shaft, he's a bad mother. She yells out, shut your mouth. My wife, I'm just talking about Shaft. Oh, that's all right. I can dig it. <laughs> um, <laughs> the best wife ever. Um, anytime she supports my gags. Any case, so myself, Pat Mullen, and Sean Comer will be reviewing the Shaft trilogy. Not the Samuel L. Jackson shitty movie, but the actual Richard Roundtree trilogy. On the 18th, Metal Hammer of Doom will be reviewing Avantage's Ghost Lights. The, uh, the Long Road to Ruin will be back on the 25th to review Beverly Hills Cop and close out Black History Month. And March 3rd, uh, the Metal Hammer of Doom, we're reviewing Anthrax for all kinks. And that'll, uh, that that takes us you know into the next month, and we'll, we'll get there when we get there. All right. This coming Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time is the 411 Ground and Pound radio show, which I host. Uh, this last Sunday, we had a special start time of 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time because... Super Bowl was on in the evening, and I gather with my family to watch it, even though I don't really care about American football. I also enjoy annoying people by referring it to it as American football, because <laughs> you're all so funky about your religion. Uh, uh, anyway, this week we'll be previewing the Cowboy versus Cowboy card UFC Fight Night 83. Uh, which is actually the Sunday after that, the Feb- so February 21st. Uh, I will have live coverage of that event in the MMA Zone of 411mania.com. Uh, but pretty much every Sunday, unless there's a major event being held in the evening, we uh, are on, you know, that show's on. Uh, apart from that, I think that's all I've got to plug right now. Hey, real quick, um, just because the end of March is going to be a very busy month with Batman vs. Superman coming out. We have a lot going on. I just want to go over that real quick for people because there's going to be some changes in the schedule. Oh, yeah, the week, like the night before, <clears throat> or the night before it comes out, you and I are doing a retroactive review of Man of Steel. Yeah, let me go through the whole thing here. So on the 23rd, um, Robert and I will be reviewing, instead of a movie, we'll be reviewing Daredevil Season 2. We're going to do it the same way we did Jessica Jones. We're going to you know, just watch the whole damn thing uh, between when it drops on the 18th and then review it on the 23rd, all of season two of Daredevil featuring The Punisher and Electro. On the 24th, we'll be, we'll be doing a show called In Defense of Man of Steel. On the 25th, well, I'm, at, well, I'm actually going to the movie, Batman vs. Uh, Superman, and Gavin from The Casual Heroes will be supplying a counter podcast called The Case Against Man of Steel. I don't think it'll be live. I'm pretty sure he's going to pre-record it and send it to me. But, um, you know, we're going to show both sides of the Man of Steel argument. So that's that week, leading into Batman versus Superman. 
the week after, we'll be reviewing it on the 30th and sort of uh, keeping in synchronicity with all things DC. Long Road to Ruin will be looking at the parts one and parts two of the Dark Knight Returns animated movies. And then Baby Metal comes out. On the same day of (coughs) (coughs) NXT Dallas, Baby Metal, Metal Resistance comes out, and I unfortunately will be flying to Dallas, so I won't be able to go see NXT. But, you know, that's neither here nor there. So that's that's Batman vs. Superman going into WrestleMania weekend. Got a lot of stuff going on. I'm going to keep promoting and talking about it. All righty. I'm just going to wrap this up here. Uh, I look forward to your review of Baby Metal because the first one is still one of the most listened to uh, shows <laughs> ever on the Rattlitz and Broadcasting Network. It sure was, Bobby Gatsby. All right. Again, Mark and I are back next week for Deadpool. Until then, everybody, please continue to be well, be safe, and behave on myself of on my, behalf of myself and Mark Rattlitz. And here's our outro music, because money, I guess. <laughs>